So, um, training the mind is a all-round cultivation. The mind is basically holistic, and that it's not really, you know, just uh, focusing on an object. But it also means how we how we're focusing on an object, how we how we witness something, the attitudes we have in mind that cause us to pay attention to something, the qualities that enable us to sustain attention, the qualities that impede us or move us around. So we're looking both at the subject, you know, that is ourselves, our apparent self, and also the object that which we're regarding. And so, you, you know, it's, it's like a 360-degree awareness. Uh, and things are coming up, moving through. And also, in uh, cultivation, we cultivate that quality of, of holistic awareness, all-around awareness, in different forms. So we have a sitting form, which provides certain strengths, say composure, Stillness, walking form, which provides a quality of flow, standing form, balance, working form. It's more to do with how we handle things, how we are impatient or prepare ourselves when we work, taking the time to set things up properly, work through something, complete it, put it away. You know, so it's a sense of patience and and systematic uh, care. Relational forms, we're listening to people regarding how we perceive people, how we feel we're perceived. Because of course all these um, different forms bring different things into our, into our awareness, into our mind. Yeah. The attitudes we have about people or about work or about doing things or about body. Yeah. Some of those attitudes we're not really aware of. Uh, you see certain patterns of, you know, either faltering or pushy, pushy, impatient, or can't really focus very well. So all these, all these things you develop, particular qualities of focusing and checking out. You know, it's like someone looking around a whole, the whole system, checking out where are the weak spots, where is it. Um, not very coherent, where is it uh, driven, where is it strong conditioning, you know, 
often in relationship with other people, how we get on or things that the kind of programs with which we relate to people. There's a lot of conditioning there. How we feel ourselves as being in other people's company as lesser or inadequate or or we've got to control and be responsible for, or we have to kind of subjugate ourselves towards other people, placate, you know. So these are all things that, working out karma, it's a holistic process. The big areas that are quite charged for us, aren't they? Our future, our security, the past, how we, how well we're doing, whether we're getting results, these can all be a lot of strong um, mental factors come up. But it's holistic. It's a bit, it's very much uh, one thing we train ourselves in, just bringing, always bringing it back to the moment, the present. So the future, the past, experiencing how we're seeing those through the lens of the present. So, you know, we can be, have that lens of the present can be one of uncertainty, therefore the future feels very uncertain, insecure. Yeah. But then we could also say the future is wonderfully open. You know, all kinds of marvelous things could happen. You know, or we think all kinds of terrible things might happen. You know, we just don't know. But you sort of see which way your know, one's inclinations operate. We can think, well, the terrible things that happened in the past, or we can remember the good things. We survived it anyway. That's a good thing. <laughs> Couldn't have been that bad. So you're checking out the whole nature of the realm which uh, we're, we're generating in the present moment. It's not really something out there, nor is it something in here, but it's dependently arisen. There are certainly there are things out there, but what we experience is dependently arisen, as what our mind is making out of things that we don't really get very clear what we can say is we have a particular subjective impression of them. So it's always de- dependently arisen. So everything can tell us something about the lens that we're regarding it through. The training is to try to develop a sense of meeting so that, that as we come to experience, we're putting as least, you know, uh, confused pressures upon ourselves, our bodies, our minds, people. We're not wavering, we're not drawing, we're just kind of meeting. You know, so it's more steady and that has an effect. Because you want to be aware of how, how what you're bringing into the present moment. And uh, though the weaker, the Buddha, for example, talked about three particular qualities that um, one should pay attention to. 
I mean, he talked about lots of things, but the one occasion he mentioned three. <laughs> and this is it's nice because I can remember three. <laughs> so three, uh, he said, well, sometimes you should pay attention to the factor of energy, the way you're applying yourself, the factor of concentration, composure, collecting things together, smoothing things, bringing things into unity, and the factor of equanimity. So if you just pay attention to one, if you're putting everything into energy, 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 the problem is your mind gets too too stressed, too agitated. You know, if you put too much into just calming it, making it quiet, calm, steady, chance it can get a sort of a bit stale, indolent. If you just put too much eff- too much emphasis on being equanimous about everything, you know, then the chances are that it gets uh, kind of dull. Mm. But the blending, and he used the image of a goldsmith, someone who has to fire things up. You know, when you want to smelt gold, you have to put it in a crucible and put some fire on it, melt it down. And then uh, the concentration is 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 creaming off all the dross, it's like he's continually skimming off the stuff that's irrelevant, impure, getting in the way, the clinker on the stuff that comes out. Now, it's an interesting way of look, considering samadhi as a purification, so it's not just a compression of effort to, to push things into, into, into unity, but it's a creaming off. You just put the effort in, and impurities come up, and you just, okay, let go of that. Let's put that aside, relax that. Let go of that. You know, you know, really scoop, skim that off. You know, put it. It's not, not doing you any good. It's just stirring you up or agitate. It's not. It's not bringing it around. And then from time to time, you just look on, contemplate it. So it's quite cool. But if you just con- if you just equanimize, it gets too cold. You know, on a fire in it. You know, so the the equanimity is a sense of uh, um, spacious awareness. It's very much with it, but it's not putting any particular pressure on it one way or another. It's just, mm. And though this is very important as because equanimity, upeka, literally means looking on. It's actually looking into. So it is, uh, um, if you don't look into the thing, you don't learn anything. So you can be putting effort into it, concentrating, working this out, but actually looking into it and seeing through insight, where insight arises. What is this? You know, what's actually this about? What is the nature of this? So if you bring these three together, you make the mind becomes pliable, workable, fine, and the goldsmith can then use that that molten gold to make anything he likes, jewellery, bracelets, or whatever he wants. So similarly, when the mind is pure, clear, finely tuned, you know, then you know, can use it for whatever. So we're looking into the mind with, uh, with equanimity so that that enables one to, to really see the nature of dhammas, nature of mental objects, arising and passing, very simply speaking. Rising and passing, they're coming up, moving through. 
And maybe this isn't such such a you know earth-shattering truth, but just the sense of bearing attention through the ending of something, the ending of a thought, the ending of a physical sensation, the receding or the fading, the arising of something, so that if you like, your attention is even on the arising and the passing. And there are times when there's nothing much happening. Particularly if you develop the sense, these qualities of, of uh, collectedness, concentration, and equanimity. There are times when the mental content gets quite thin. You know, not a lot of thought going on. Uh, there's no great passions. There's no, you're just kind of steady. And think, oh, you know, you know. <laughs> and then there can be a restlessness or a fear. These are quite um, things that people sense, not fear, but anxiety, you know, shouldn't I be doing something, or what's happening now, or, you know, or we get restless, we want something, some special thing to be seen or known. What can occur, particularly in terms of a long-term retreat, is there's just times when there's nothing much going on, you get a bit bored, really. So then that's an impurity, and you, you contemplate that, you skim that off. How do you skim off boredom? You begin to look into it clearly, and you realize boredom is is aversion, aversion to um, to nothing much happening. It's a hunger, stimulation. So then we start to really, okay, you know, put more energy into contemplating or being with sensations, feelings, energies as they are. So rather than the mind looking for something to feed on, you give it something to do. Sweep the body, move around, move your attention around steadily, give it more and more quality. Now you can do this moving it around your body, slowly, sensing the difference between the sensations in one finger from the next finger, or from one hand to the other hand. So it gives it something to work with. Uh, because the mind would tend to go into automatic and say, well, you know, it's all about the same, really. One hand, same as the other, it's just a body, nothing much in that. And then it needs to be purified of its, of its laziness. And it's, uh, you know, really going in there. It requires a lot of patience. But this really is the, is the, um, the main feature of the practice. It's not about being able to focus on a particular point although that's part of it, that's your, that's your foundation, but then really working on the qualities of mind, emotions, attitudes, expectations, judgments, conclusions, self-imagery that comes up in that process. And the old time, you just keep coming back to, you know, deepening, into you know, just skim that off, skim it off, get back to the point. And the point is both the object and, but probably more important, the way that we are um, with that. You, know, you could say the way the mind is, what the mind is with that. So the mind can become extremely steady and equanimous, and uh, look into into dhammas experiences. See what they really, 
you know, it's going on. We can get lost in stories any particular time. But it's not the story shouldn't happen. In a way, this is part of the process. In order to skim it off, it's got to arise. So these various images we have, these little tape loops of our lives or our impressions of ourselves come up. Okay, fine. What's this one about? This is about, it's got the qualities of regret or nostalgia or grudges or craving of some kind okay there's just contemplate this these are not self these these are fundamental qualities that all all of us have we can the nature of the story is different but the ink is the same and learning to meet that it's only in meeting it, clear, focusing, steadying, meeting it, that you begin to see that the, you know, though there's, though there's, um, you know, regret, there isn't anybody regretting anything. There's just a regret experience or a craving experience. There isn't somebody doing it. It's just coming up. Yeah. And then you, what the. Feel the feeling of that, the um, disagreeable quality, the perception, and essentially the 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 agent, the activity that keeps bringing it back and pushing it, was like wanting you to do something about it, you know, stirring it up. And if you separate these, so it's uh, if we generally in terms of dhammas, mental objects, you have. Uh, a perception, which is the image, a little picture, or the word string, strings of words. These are the perceptions. These catch all the attention. They're quite luminous and uh, evocative. And then there's the feeling that goes along with that, say, irritated or, or um, excited, or whatever it is. And then there's this... Um, Activity or sankara, which keeps digging it, pushing it back, keeps bringing it back, bringing it back, stirring it up, turning it around, fiddling with it, playing with it. And that's the one you really want to work on because all perceptions have some truth in them. You know, we're not complete fabrications. So we can remember things, that's part of what people can do. We can retain images of ourselves and of others, that's part of what we do, the mind does. But when is it when is it used in some obsessive compulsive way? So we focus on the very quality of that intention, that activity. You can feel a kind of nervous push with it, and that's what you focus on and just start relaxing that the desire to get rid of it, the trying to fix it, the analysing it the uh, proliferations around it. Just focus on the very nerve ending of that push of intention, push of mental activity, stirring, digging, ruminate, turning it round. You sense it as 
as a, a thing in itself. So then if you separate it from the perception, the image, the idea, you see, so you start to feel, have the story, and then go to the energy in the story, till eventually you put the story aside and just sense the feeling of this regret, or angry, or longing, or whatever it is, you know. So when you remove the perception, then it hasn't really got much to work on anymore. You know, you've got to be angry about something. So you sit there feeling angry, and then if you don't have an image of that, something for it to get angry about, it sort of doesn't got the food. Generally, when the mind is angry, it starts to find things to be angry about, or it's irritated. But if you keep going back to the sense of irritation itself and just holding it, feeling it in your body, breathing in and out, steadying in, you know, so you get the sense of calming your nervous system around that, meeting with equanimity, it starts to deconstruct because it hasn't got anything to work upon. One of the things that people will often find themselves doing is feeling guilty about feeling angry or, bit, or angry about feeling guilty. Or <laughs> so you get one set of activities acting on another. So the, the, the breaking point of that is, is what concentration and equanimity are about. Just hold it steady and then meet it with equanimity. And it starts to, by itself, it starts to decon, de, deconstruct, fade out. Takes the time. We learn a few things. Generally, you find that what you learn is that the, the the activity is the thing that really makes a big deal out of the of the perception. You know, I'm sure all of us in our lives have felt we have been entirely blameless. You know, <laughs> and everything we haven't done anything perfectly well. People haven't always been kind and totally understanding to us. Yeah, you know, so what else is new? But then you can pick one of these up and it becomes intensely, you know, mine and I, you know, dramatic. And that's, that's the piece that we can work on. We can't say that, honestly, we've all been faultless or that people have always been so wonderful. We haven't. But we can stop that, we can check that activity that is intensifying it and bringing it up. This is the way that you clear out the past. Clearing out the past, you open up the future to something that's quite open, rather than always on the run from the past. Meeting it. Reading a, an interesting article about a man who has worked as a psychiatrist, and he he had one particular case of somebody who was in a mental home. This person had been picked up, and he would just uh, all this man would say was his name, George. And he would say hello. That's all he would say. But he, 
in in words we could understand, but he'd also give talks in gibberish. So he'd say, "My name is George." You know, da 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 da. It's a nice day, and then he'd he talk for twenty minutes in complete unintelligible gibberish. So they put him in this mental home. So he was there five years or so. The first three years, he'd get up when somebody came into the ward. He'd get up and rush towards them and start giving them this whole spiel of gibberish. You know, of course, nobody nobody could respond to that. Uh, so after a while, he just took to sitting on his own on this bench, sitting on his own. And if anybody came up to him, he'd he'd give him a few minutes of gibberish in a kind of angry way, and then he'd shut up and go silent. So he was gradually, you know, losing any ability to, or interest in talking to people. So this, uh, they studied this, recorded some of his his gibberish, and they got it on a tape, and this psychiatrist listened to it all, and he tried to learn it. Some of it was words, some of it was just sounds. Actually... You know, learn his language. So he, he studied this and he listened to it till he could construct a conversation in gibberish himself. So then he, he went to the ward and he'd, uh, the time this chap George was sitting on this bench and you could go and sit somewhere near him and he wouldn't say anything. He might just address you. You know, my name is George and then he'd come out with some gibberish in an angry way and then so on. So this, this psychiatrist went and sat on the bench, sat in silence, waited about an hour or so, and eventually the guy turns around and says a few words, starts talking gibberish to him. Then the psychiatrist starts talking gibberish back to him. So this guy lights up and he says some more gibberish. So they have this conversation in gibberish. It goes on for a, an hour or so, at which you know it sort of stops and he gets up guy stops, he gets up and leaves. This goes on for a while. And then uh, one day he goes there and he sits down and the guy comes up with a few words of normal speak, like, my name is George, blah, blah, blah. and he goes for four hours of gibberish. <laughs> so the psychiatrist sits there listening to this gibberish for four hours. Then he, goes, then he replies with two hours of gibberish, and then the, the uh, patient replies with another two hours of gibberish. So that's eight hours. At the end of which, the guy kind of craw- crawls off. <laughs> and so, so anyway, then the next day he comes back, sits down again, after this mammoth marathon gibberish session. And... Uh, same thing starts up. He says, he says this in gibberish. And the, and the guy addresses him in gibberish. And he dresses back in gibberish. And the guy says, Why don't you talk sense, Doc? <laughs> <laughs> and then says some gibberish. More gibberish. And he says, so then he says, you know, Finally, somebody knows how to talk to me in this place. I've been waiting here for five years and nobody's been able to say a word to me. Finally, somebody's managed to say this crummy joint has managed to say something useful. And he talks some more gibberish for another hour or two. So the doctor talks gibberish back to him and says a few remarks and they go off. And gradually what happens with this meeting 
is that the percentage of gibberish gets less and less and the amount of ordinary English builds up. There's this kind of weaning process and the doctor just continues to come back and sit with the chap and talk gibberish to him and then speak in English and it kind of... And it gets to the point when this uh, this guy can speak enough um, to to be um, released from the mental institute. So it takes five years before this doctor sees him. In one year seeing him, he's actually able to be released, and he's able to get work. And he still likes to give a conversation. Always throw some gibberish in. So I keep keep his hand in. Uh, <laughs> And the last they heard of him, he wrote a letter. He writes a letter and he just finishes it off with a load of gibberish as a kind of, you know. <laughs> so he never completely loses it. And but the, uh, you know, the proportion of sense gets stronger and stronger. Um, it's just through the power of, of, of meeting, you know. Meeting something with equanimity, not trying to change it, just really wanted to be with that. And there's great compassion, patience, because you're not, you know, it's not so demanding a result. You just want to meet it. I think it's a good example for how to meet <laughs> some of your own gibberish, you know. Without that, you know. This has got to make sense. And, got to, and even the non-verbal, a lot, I guess most of our lives are fairly untidy, you know, loose ends, unfinished things, you know. Relatives we haven't seen, things we should have done, people we've got some bad memories about, it's all kind of loose ends and straggly bits. You sit, you know, and the... So one has to put time in to just, you know, stepping back to equanimity. It's this. Can we meet it with equanimity? So, that, of course, that still requires effort because I don't want to listen to my gibberish. <laughs> you know. But then there's a point in which too much effort trying to sort yourself out just makes you more tense and agitated. Too high a demand for purity just means you're endlessly preening and fretting and, you know, trying to make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. So it's the balance, isn't it? And perhaps one of the things that uh, is important to keep remembering is that quality of what is it take how we encourage to to be with ourselves because ourselves are not ourselves ourselves are our hearts and minds which go through all kinds of uh, patterns of disappointment and pressure and grief and you know stuff life So we really, you know, the overall sense of practice is the 
one's mind, one's practice becomes a good friend, not a demanding um, boss, but a good friend. In this way, then, there's no end to our interest and our our willingness to to practice. You know? you want to, you know, because when you have a good friend, you want to be with him a lot. You want to be with him a lot, and you take a good friend with you when you work, or when you make a mess of things, or when you, you know, whatever you're doing, speaking, you take a good friend with you. And it's always like the good friend is always there saying, just, just, just take your time, wait, no, wait, no, just be careful. Before you start, as you're doing it, and then look at the results, look at the end, particularly the ending of things. That's the bit you want, want to jump to the next thing. Just steady there. You know? There's no hurry. Move through. And this is perhaps the piece that's one of the most important Perhaps the piece is the beginning, what compounds? What is it that's bringing up our activities? What is it? What's, our, what's the causing? What's the causative quality? Worry, uh, joy, um, eagerness, uh, whatever, what is it? Is that carefully handled? What's the ending when thoughts sort of just peter out, stuff breaks up? You know, moods shift. Then you can see something really useful. Really useful. Because it's in the ending of things, it's like the threads come apart. And you see the the images fade and the the quality of the, the intention becomes clearer. The emotional push behind it becomes clearer. Oh, that's what it's about. Mm-hmm. This is this is the peace that we can purify, release. So, offer this for your reflection.